communities that are consistently criminalized. So they're criminalized and discursively or through discourse and conversation, they're constructed as outlaws. So they're criminalized by um, arbitrary arrests, by evictions, by also by our narratives as who, us who perpetuate narratives about sh sh people who live in informal settlements as the other. So they're criminalized in that way. Thanks. But more powerfully and more sinisterly, they don't have recourse to laws that are there to protect them. So in the Kenyan constitution, mm -hmm. we have the right to housing, we have the rights of an arrested person, we have the Bill of Rights, Article 47, that talks about your right to food, your right to property, but they don't have recourse to the law. And so for me, outlaw is people outside of the law, so outlaw, but equally populations that are consistently criminalized. Salam and hello everyone. My name is Lily Bakala Piper and welcome to the show. So every week I get this fantastic summary of news on the continent put together by Jeffrey Pollard. It's called This Week in Africa. I love that resource because usually there are about 50, 60 hyperlinks in there that guide me to the latest political, social, cultural movements that are happening across the continent. Back in November, in one of his weekly summaries, he linked to several articles around climate crisis, ecological movements, and in particular, one article caught my eye. It was published by Dr. Wangui Kimari. It was published in the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research. And the title of the article was Colored New Green, The Color Green. As I read that article, I was really moved by some ideas that she was introducing to me for the first time. I consider myself somebody who's conscious about the environment, who tries to recycle, who tries to plant green spaces. But what she put forward in her article really challenged a lot of my perceptions of my own experience in this city of Nairobi that I've had the privilege to call home for the last 12, 13 years. She put forward this idea that there are outlaws in our society who have been marginalized to very non-green spaces, spaces that suffer from ins food insecurity, who are feeling the most harsh effects of the climate crisis, whose health is often more at risk because of those disparities in what they have access to. She talked about communities that were taking upon themselves authentic grassroots movements to actually restore green spaces to urban places throughout the city that had been left out of original designs for Nairobi. You know, Nairobi's design is not by accident, like any urban center across the world, and then particularly in Africa. Nairobi city has vestiges of colonialism that are very obvious. If you've ever flown over the city or had, you know, been at the top of the KICC building and you look out, you can see very green areas of our city and you can see much more space that is brown, that is flat, that is less dynamic, where it's clear that there is a difference in the experience of the people in those areas versus those in the greener spaces. Kenya or Nairobi in particular is called, you know, um, the green city, city in the sun. And yet that's not the way that many people experience Nairobi. I went on to read her article to try and understand what she was trying to call us to, you know, what was the call of action in her words? And she cited many, many movements from those who plant maize very casually around the roads. Should, we've all seen it. You know, you, you can go to any part of the city. And if there's a plot of land, there's probably some sort of maize on it. And she highlighted for us that those spaces are not by accident. They are deliberate, almost radical movements to preserve spaces that should belong to Kenyans that are now being taken over in many places in the name of development. Dr. Kamiari also writes for Africa as a Country, another one of my favorite resources for information on the continent. I find that blog this full of perspectives that are Pan-African, that are really important for us to consume if we want to be active, engaged citizens. In fact, this week's um, page has some great writing around AFCON. You should check it out. There was a great article, in fact, as AFCON as a playlist, which is wonderful. Definitely recommend it. And we reached out to Dr. Kimari. We wanted to have her on the show to talk to us about 
when you come down from the 30,000 foot level down to the ground, what is the actual reality of a majority of Nairobi's and of Kenya citizens? One statistic that she cited that really humbled me was that over 60% of Nairobi's population occupies about 5% of the land. So think about that 60,000, 60% of that population on 5% of the land. The math there, as the youth say, is not mathing. So I am really delighted to welcome Dr. Kimari to the show today. And let me tell you a little bit about her work and research. She is an urban anthropologist at American University Nairobi and is affiliated with the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town and is a participatory action research coordinator at the Mathari Social Justice Center here in Nairobi. Dr. Kimari's research is a unique blend of local histories and diverse theoretical approaches, including oral narratives, urban political ecology, and the Black radical tradition, which I just love. I can't wait to ask her about that. I had never heard that concept before. Her focus is on examining urban spatial management in Nairobi from the perspectives of the most marginalized communities and providing a voice to those who are often unheard in mainstream media platforms. And in particular, as it relates to urban development, you know, when people are sitting down to plan, who are the voices that are present, present informing those decisions? That's what she's kind of hyper-focused and looking at. In addition to her academic pursuits, Dr. Kimari is also an active editorial board member at Africa as a Country and the co-organizer of the UTA Do African Cities Workshop, an annual critical urban studies summer school in Nairobi. What I love about her work is that it's not just academic in scope. There is the data, there is the research that is so important for us to understand, but it's also very grassroots. It's very practical. It gives us a handle in which we can engage in the places, if we live in any urban center across the world, we can engage more authentically with movements to restore ecological justice. So I'm just delighted that Dr. Kimari is with us today and welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Lily. <clears throat> Honestly, yeah, that's very extensive, uh, sorry, extensive and unnecessarily long bio. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank no, you. We have to, yeah. We have to give you your flowers. Asante, thank you. And as an academic, no one ever reads any like your article. You can labor for so long to write something. So it's always nice when someone reads something. So I appreciate that. And thanks for your kind words. Well, thank you for your research. I, I think as we all continue to live, you know, I remember when COP26 happened, for example, uh, now two years ago, there was so much buzz, right? It was the first COP in, in such a long time. We were coming out of the pandemic and COP27 and COP28, I feel like got progressively quieter. The mm. buzz, the demands, the conversations were just not hitting the mainstream. So when I came across your article in particular and being a resident of Nairobi, I just feel like it's vital and crucial learning and understanding for anybody who lives in an African urban center as we continue to see these big shifts in populations to urban center. It's always been there, but predictions are that I think in the next 20, 10 to 20 years, we will see more people in urban centers than rural ones. And so really important to understand your work. So let me just ask you to start off by telling us what inspired you to, to focus your research on urban justice and ecological futures? You know, like, um, I'm sure like most researchers, uh, it's really, for me, it's my own experiences. So growing up in Nairobi, growing up in South B, which is, she doesn't have a lot of vegetation. Um, but I think the pivotal point was when I went to Madare in 2007. And I went there as part of some, uh, a friend who was in activist circles. And I remember trying to understand this reality versus the reality I came mm -hmm. from, which was kind of a boring, middle-class aspirational, I mean, it, it has interesting people, but it has sure. concrete houses, you know, water, etc. But going to this context and seeing the interconnection between uh, diversity of phenomena. So the people who don't have water, the same people being killed by the police, or the same people who are going to have cholera, are the same people who are being evicted. So trying to understand what all of that meant in the history of that space initially, I think, led me to this work, just trying to understand the different histories of particular spaces in Nairobi, but also trying to be 
kind of a useful researcher and, and not doing research for research's sake. Mm -hmm. I still don't know how useful I am. <laughs> but I am very grateful also for the understandings of the city that for me uh, have emerged in, in just asking new questions and being allowed to ask questions to people I've known for 15 years who live a reality I don't live but are willing to share, but also defy the legacies that have been forced on them, really. Absolutely. So let's dive right into some of the things you've already mentioned just now, the forced reality that people are living with. You talk about in your article that Nairobi is a result of both colonial planning and post-colonial, quote, development. So tell us what you mean by that. How has Nairobi arrived at where it is? And how would you actually describe Nairobi to somebody who's never been here? Okay, I'm going to try to not be so long-winded. But, um, you know, Nairobi was is an accident of colonial geography and colonial imperial uh, projects, really. We were just, people are trying to build a railway, the British... Imperial British East African Company was trying to build a railway from Mombasa to Kampala to extract goods. And almost in the middle uh, is Nairobi, and Nairobi was cool. And Europeans were not trying to deal with Mombasa weather or humidity. So they're like, okay, it's cool. Uh, it's well watered and it's full of game. I think that was part of the logic that uh, informed them, but it was, it was. It was cool, it, there was not a lot of malaria, etc. But even from, and there's scholars who say, even from the initial layout of those tents of the Imperial British East African Company, where the Europeans were, where the African porters were, where the South Asian indentured labor were, there was a rigid racialism in, in like established in the city. So Nairobi is, for many, really, still is a colonial city, even if. There's all of this improvisation, and we're in the post-independence period. Um, and But you can still see how the zoning from this period endures, and the logics from uh, this period endures. And so if I was to describe Nairobi to someone, personally for me, it's all my dreams and all my nightmares, because I, I really feel alive in this city. It teaches me a lot. But it also makes me uh, recognize how cities become the spatial, uh, it's really spatial territory to continue a capitalist project that really considers many people disposable. And you can see how uh, that happens if Madare is one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city, Kibera, but the conditions of people there in terms of shelter, in terms of water, for me, it's really, it's effectively systemic dehydration neglect and abandonment. So I would say in the post-colonial period, um, the colonial period is a colonial period. You know, it was trying to, it's an apartheid city, very evident, but the post-colonial period for me um, embodies an urban planning of neglect and force for the majority. So it's either neglecting you or enacting force in diverse ways. And people people navigate this. For me, I, I live in a, in, the like former white Nairobi, so I am I'm fine. But for the majority of people, this is a they're just dealing with the legacies of colonialism, but also a post-colonial period that builds on that. But for various motivations, whether it's the public purse, maybe there's not enough money, but also the rationale that a city is for business rather than for living in, creates the conditions mm -hmm. of possibility for disposable existences in this city. Wow, okay. So I want to touch on a few things you said there and and just see if we can go broader in, in what you've said. So in the beginning, you talked about how Nairobi is almost an accident in terms of that it became the capital, that it became what it is today. But the planning of Nairobi was not an accident. So I'd love for you to tell us how the 1948 master plan for a colonial capital and the 1973 metropolitan growth strategy, number one, what are they? These are form formulaic documents for the guidance of Nairobi's development. What were they? 
And how do they remain today in kind of what you said at the end of your statement, which is you live in the white part, as do I, I live in Westlands. So how does that plan, those plans still show up today? What does it mean for us? So the 1948 master plan was the first master plan for a colonial city. Before, initially Nairobi was just a town. Then it became, uh, I think it finally became a city in, don't quote me, but um, actually maybe 1950. But the, the 1948 master plan in some ways was kind of preempting this because populations were large. <clears throat> and infrastructure needed to be built. But for the most part, infrastructure was being built. And there's some, the, in 1927, the minister of, or the head of the municipality said, Nairobi does more for horses than it does for Africans. So there was infrastructure already being built, but it just wasn't for Africans who were not meant to live in the city at all. Mm -hmm. If you are here, you are here working. But you are not meant to be a detribalized native. That was part of the colonial project. You need to stay in your rural area and we'll give you divide and rule in, in that area. But the 1914 master plan comes in the post-war period when um, there's really Africans are here in the city, especially African civil servants and demobilized soldiers. And you just need to, ultimately, you need to plan something. And this plan, interestingly, it's really, I think in the first few pages talks about how it's meant to have a humanistic bias. But precede, Interesting. That, but not that it's saying this. <clears throat> and the people who are doing this plan are three South Africans who are coming to do it the same year that apartheid was legislated in, in South Africa. So wow. Wow. this humanistic bias is, is just... Uh, it's just PR. But, you know, ultimately, from my understanding, and I'm not a planner, I'm always agitating against planners, but I'm, I'm not a planner. From my understanding, that plan wanted to establish a garden city. So that's a city where they, it was a green city where there are different neighborhoods with green buffers around it. But from my assessment, that wasn't realized, <clears throat> although... I'm sure some things were put in place. So, but ultimately, I don't know if the 1948 plan had as much impact as preceding uh, policies, say ones on hmm. um, on on public health that were saying we need to separate races because of public health concerns. All of these brown and black people are going to give us the plague. They can't have sexual encounters together. We need to have buffers between them. So I'm not sure that the 1948 master plan had as much impact as these preceding small uh, policies. Sure. Although it's upheld because it's a first plan for a colonial city. And it's actually it's called not a colonial city. It's a first plan for colonial capital. Um, but effectively for Africans, it didn't make a difference because more was being done for horses. <laughs> Then for Africa. You say it's so important because like any colonial or apartheid state, there's not a single actor. There are multiple movements creating a state in which the inequities are upheld. So previous policies, the fact that it was not Kenyans planning their own city, not even, I mean, there are many factors here that contribute to where we are today. What what was reinforced and by the 19th metropolitan growth strategy how did it build on the previous policies in for for nairobi in terms of the 1972 growth strategy it was kind of the first post independence plan and it seemed to have a lot of people were rallied around it uh, there was uh, a lot a congregation of actors at the university of nairobi I'm not sure if it was at the un it may have been an institute for human settlements or something. But <clears throat> from the assessment given by scholars, say Uwar and Batia, who are at University of Nairobi, they say it really didn't, the city may have been deracialized, but race was replaced by class. And so uh, there was all of these plans for until the year 2000, 
none of which were realized because it just the city continued to function as a, a mode a site of accumulation for people who could replace white people in specific places let's talk for a moment about rura nairobi arboretum city park these places are beautiful they are a wonderful way to spend an afternoon i am puzzled though as you know somebody who's lived in the city a long, long time read i think some about kenya how did a place like Karura, that one guy Mathai, you know, bled and died to, to, or gave her life's work to preserve, how did it become so inaccessible to a majority of the city? Because if you go there on a Saturday and walk, you will see plenty of Kenyans. But I want to say that it's maybe half-half Kenyan nationals and half non. And don't begrudge anybody the use of a beautiful park. You pay a fee. I think the fees are around 200 shillings, something like that, for residents. I'm a resident. I don't know what it is for citizens. But how did it become inaccessible? I mean, how did we get here with some of these beautiful green spaces? You know, I mean, first, green is located in areas of, of privilege. If you look at a map of Nairobi where the, you see green, it's an area of privilege. So I think that has a role in that. Also colonially, I mean, in the colonial period, white people didn't want to live in low-lying areas. So low-lying areas were floodplains, were places, in, yeah, you know, where there was um, a lot of malaria. And so those are not the regions that would have abundance of trees. Um, so that's why you see in places of privilege, that's where Karura is. But I also, I'm not sure the, the, logics that informed, say, the Friends of Karura Forest. But I would, I also recognize that they don't have support from the government. So if they're going to make uh, trees 80% indigenous, that costs labor, that those are water costs. And so I can understand why um, to have some costs. But Really, I, I want us to get to a place where we are like Uhuru Park, which unfortunately has now been closed. Because if you went to Uhuru Park downtown, everyone is there. Right. You don't even need, everyone was there and just using that green for anything. And it was, I think, the only publicly accessible green space in Nairobi. But now it's it's closed for reasons we are not given. Right. But I think, it, but that reasons that certainly um, <clears throat> are informed by this bid to to uh, just render all green space you know profitable or or even exclusive yeah that's it's you know and I think we see these policies in a lot of urban centers across Africa once it is uh, green, it's lush, it's cleaned up or restored in some ways, now then the barriers come in. A fence, a mm -hmm. cost, some kind mm -hmm. of access control begins to infiltrate it. And certainly is the case in, in, in so many cities nearby. Thank you for those explanations. You know, what I think is clear to me is that your article posits this idea that Nairobi now has a group of outlaws who are trying to green the city. And what strikes me is that there were laws that created the city. There were policies that then created these outlaws. You know, we've talked about two of them, but there are numerous other ones that racialized the city, classified the city, race and class become now almost, you know, automatically connected to your potential outcomes. And now this group of outlaws try to take back some power. So tell us how your research, what you're understanding in your research about past policies, and then current outlaw activity? And what's an example of one that you've seen emerge in the communities that you've you know, already mentioned about the city? So when I say outlaw, sure. my husband uh, doesn't like it, but uh, I'm still trying to impose it in my work, but because I think it captures a few things. So first, uh, uh, communities that are consistently criminalized. So they're criminalized and discursively or through discourse and conversation, they're constructed as outlaws. So they're criminalized by um, arbitrary arrest, by evictions, by 
also by our narratives as who as who perpetuate narratives about sh sh people who live in informal settlements as the other so they're criminalized in that way Thanks. but more powerfully and more sinisterly they don't have recourse to laws that are there to protect them so in the kenyan constitution mm -hmm. we have the right to housing we have the rights of an arrested person we have the Bill of Rights, Article 47, that talks about your right to food, your right to property, but they don't have recourse to the law. And so for me, outlaw is people outside of the law, so outlaw, but equally populations that are consistently criminalized. And so I use that framing to capture these two senses, but across history. And because you're living like an outlaw, your your house is consistently under siege. You don't know if it will be there today or tomorrow, but you're still there, right? You're still um, you're still holding on um, because your mode of environmentalism is not valid because you're 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 planting trees and greening space in a place where you don't have tenure. But besides that, you're doing greening invested with an ideology that's not some bourgeois environmentalism that we just need trees for the city to look nice. But trees that are being grown are for food, are for medicine, are to memorialize people who've been killed by the police. And so these are practices that even as you do them, you may still be criminalized, but they also are outside of the the enduring logic of the city of Nairobi, you know? So give us some examples, you know, what, where are you seeing in your research, these outlaw activities, who's doing them, where are they occurring? Tell us more. So it's, it's young people and outlaw for me is more reference to the subject or the resident. So it's young, young people who are, um, who are doing the work of, the Nairobi River Commission or the or the all our climate change bodies because they're actually invested in in making a change but they will never be present on that table of the Africa Climate Summit mm -hmm. or the Paris conference because they are they are consistently criminalized and they're not protected by the law i don't know if that uh, example makes sense for you or people who are who are protecting property that shouldn't exist, that's not meant to exist in the city. So creating housing and communities and spaces that they're denied legally, you know? And uh, and enduring, but there is 206,000 people. I can't tell you which percentage has even any tenure recognition, but they're there and they're thriving and they're trying to create communities. And as part of this, this creation of community are ecological practices to to better the environment, even in a community that's not meant to be. They're trying to uh, green a river and clean a river that is polluted not by the activities. And this is a small um, tangent, but in 2008, the UNEP had, and there have been various iterations of Nairobi River Commissions or Nairobi River Rehabilitation, mm. always top down. and what would happen? Well, the proposition was that slum dwellers would be evicted. But no one was talking about the pollution that was coming upstream or from landlords in Kileleshwa who pump all their waste in the Nairobi River system or industries in industrial area, sorry, in Kileleshwa and in industrial area who channel things there. And so they're persistently criminalized. Uh, in this ecology, even when they're just, you know, their activities yeah. are just, anyway, you know. But yes. really, I say outlaw outlaw to, to reference a way of living that's pro proscribed in the city. And so then that lends itself to activities that however restorative they are uh, for our planet, for our people, are, are seen as not not as valid as uh, Ruto planting a tree or driving an electric car during the Africa Climate Summit. Thanks for painting that picture for us. I, I'm struck by the connections between 
laws that were before Kenya's independence, post-independence laws, and this idea of criminalization. Um, one of the people you quote in your research is a fellow researcher, and I just want to read you uh, some of their words. They said, what we're doing with ecological justice is to claim back public spaces, not using violence or protests, but by soft power, by coming up with a solution to this problem. We sweep the dirt. We plant a tree. That'll be the resistance force that will not go away, but one that will remain. Exactly. And honestly, that's from the mouth of a of a 22-year-old who I'm so ex I'm really excited for this next generation because quite a few generations are quite useless. I need to, <laughs> I need to say, but this coming generation, <laughs> I'm really emboldened by them and especially uh yeah i'm i'm really emboldened by them and for him he's saying that literally these communities are doing the work that the government should have done a long time ago and so how are you seeing them criminalized i mean if you think about okay i've planted some maize i've taken some plastic out of the river on the surface those seem like appropriate good citizen behaviors where does the criminalization come in? How are they being targeted? So the criminalization is not so much from the activities, but by their own existence. Really, your existence is already criminalized. So you may have activities that you do that are not criminalized. I'm sure uh, lots of people will take photos of you planting trees, but your everyday existence is illegal. Mm -hmm. You live in an illegal house, uh, you're using your water will be cut off because people will say it's illegal. The fire emergency services will not come to you because you don't have roads because you're an illegal uh, settlement. So their existence is illegal. Certainly, their activities, their green activities that may be <clears throat> recognized as important, but their very existence, specifically in that space that is not legal, is is outlawed. Yeah. Yeah. That's really so, powerful because if somebody's yeah. very existence can now be just to live and thrive, if that becomes an act of resistance, just to want a pleasant environment, to want community, we have lost the mark. And where we're headed is, is really off the cliff in a, in a way. I cut you off, though, so please continue. You were mid-thought, pardon. No, and I just want to say that... Um, it's important for me to highlight that some of a lot of the ideological investments in greening in, say, Madare or in Korogocho or Dandora are very different from the ideological investments of, say, the Ministry of the Environment, you know? Who may are they different? Tell us more. So, uh, whereas for young people, they are planting trees to say, they're planting trees recognizing that Nairobi was an apartheid city that doesn't want them to have trees. So this is a resistance against it. So this is planting trees as part of resistance, as part of memory, as part of cultural rehabilitation. Whereas for the Ministry of Environment, it's planting trees as carbon sinks to bring water. I'm not saying it's so it diverges so much, but they're particular spatial and situated investments that emerge because you are an illegal person and you're considered outlaw uh, that are specific to to these environmental greening work that's happening here. People are planting maize on the road because they don't have land and they don't have land because we've never dealt with the land question in this country, you know? And so it's important to think not just about the greening, but the what they signify in, in in people's lives far from these very formal tables that talk about the need to green. We need to green, sure, because the our climate is really, really struggling. But there's other histories and genealogies in people's lives that lead to them to lend other understandings to their own greening work. I like how you put that to lend understanding to their own greening work. And, and you mentioned earlier, too, about so many of these activities, you know, the planning for events or even our recent new national holiday for tree planting are top <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Whereas if we put our ear to the ground of what communities are already doing, we will actually find probably many of the solutions that don't need to be made into a public holiday to have impact and to have effect. So I want to just continue to think about this in terms of the youth in particular. And in your article, you, you cite several communities that are, are doing such powerful work to bring ecological justice, uh, Dandora, Madari, Korogocho, Babadogo. Baba you mentioned several in particular, this idea of turning garbage into gardens. Can you just share with us some examples, some stories from these communities that have really inspired and moved you? You know, there are lots actually, and maybe I'll, because of my my more knowledge about this place, I'll talk about Madare. So in Madare currently, there's young people who are making public parks. So they're about, or oh, there are numerous green spaces. Um, which is noteworthy because it's not a space. It's not an area where there's a lot of space. Any small spaces yeah. they can up by a ten by ten dwelling, and if you've managed to safeguard uh, an acre or two acres in this place in the middle of Madare, then that means young people are really without really. It's not your form of income, but determination. Certainly, there's help here and there. But through your determination to say designate this will be Madare People's Park, uh, <clears throat> it's really it's really quite impressive. And so there's a number of parks in Madare. There's one in Langokubwa, where in an area where even me I wasn't sure a tree would grow. Really, there's parts of there everywhere you're like hmm. the pollution of this soil, the pollution of the water that's being hmm. uh, going on the trees, the fact that people are paying money buying water at a higher cost than you and I because it's delivered not through the grid but are using that money that they're paying for to to grow trees is really indicative of a determination to create green spaces so that people can get away from the heat island that's Madare where uh, the young person who who you cited earlier he calls it an iron desert so they're creating mm -hmm. these oases amidst these iron deserts of corrugated iron roofs where young people can see trees, they can see nature, they can uh, have swings, they can have a, a place of respite. When that was actively denied to them since the inception of this colonial city. And so for me, it's really Absolutely. inspiring because it's being done through sheer determination. It's a lot of dedication to find seedlings. Seedlings cost money. To water them, uh, water is cost four times more in places like Madare. And to keep this park with the recognition that there's no space for housing, so people would take housing. But wanting mm. to keep it alive to, to grow a tree outside and within, you know, so it's part of an external greening, but an internal um, rehabilitation of of community, of giving people a space to meet, to sit. And that soft power is important because once you have a little forest or a little place where people can congregate, they can talk about the different issues that are beleaguering their communities. And so it has multiple, 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 multiple effects. And really it's kind of a, a gesture to the city which refused to green them for years. Uh, yeah. That, You've given us environmental apartheid, but here we are greening in ways that make sense for us. And we'll make sure this plant grows because we want our community to grow, grow like this tree. That's so, so hopeful, like you said, so inspiring and, and gives us hope for what's possible when I think about trees being planted and then now there's a gathering place. It gives me chills actually to think about how restorative and how powerful that collective action will be. It's going to build on itself. This collective action to create green space might then create collective action for health or education, et cetera. And, and you talk about that intersectionality as being so critical. And I'm going to read you now some of your own words <laughs> from your article. And I just want to ask you to reflect on that. You say that this outlaw greening is invested with a radical desire to change socio-ecological and material conditions and to question the very logics that consider these areas unworthy of nature and basic rights. Here, 
bids for the environment, a simple tree, are also steps for food security, access to medicine, shelter, community memorializations, and even employment. Tell us more about how critical intersectionality is to the work that they're doing in these communities. I mean, all our lives are intersectional. And, you know, in that, in the body or the person of a Madari resident congregates so many histories and also so many oppressions. So in this greening, uh, people are trying to resolve many things. Young people are growing bamboo by the Madari River that they sell and they make into furniture. They sell the seedlings, so it becomes a form of employment because you've denied that body a job. That body can't get a job because they're from Madare, they don't have education, they don't have the networks. So instead of writing a CV with which wouldn't be considered valid, young people are mm-hmm. coming together to sell s- s- uh, seedlings, you know, or they're going to have a park where uh, on the weekends, instead of people selling produce outside of the community, you can come and sell your own handicraft. And that is changing households, is changing also local ideas about Madare. Because often you can, and I'm not, again, I'm not a resident, but people say that you can believe the narratives that are are written about this place, which are really quite Mm. uh, detrimental. And it's it's long-term discourses. When I was doing my PhD, I, I was tracking some of these discourses in the, in, you know, across the years. And um, people are always like, yes, it's uh, in the 40s. It's a settlement with no legitimacy at all. In the 50s, it's like the hotbed of Mau Mau and all of these ungovernable Africans who are going to resist the <laughs> colonial state. In the 60s, it's shack dwellers who don't want to go back to their rural areas. So the city council is always putting fire on them. On the, In the 70s, it's the site of prostitutes and criminals, the 80s too. So you can see how these discourses, because they have strength yeah. over many years, then they 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 make legitimate this exclusion and this crim- criminalization. And so planting a tree and, and doing greening work and doing all of these activities, I, I would suggest contributes to a sense of self that, that charges against these established narratives of of slum dwellers, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I appreciate how you've given us such a quick glance at decade by decade, how these assumptions, these characterizations then become truth, and that truth to some people then inform policy. They yeah. inform what now external governments come and say, we'll give you a million dollars to do an X project, right? Because now they've understood that that's what the need is, as opposed to those in the communities informing what the needs are. It's it's an important distinction, I think, also to think about how we hold the tension of the need for more justice in these communities. And let me crystallize it a bit more. These communities need more access to and I shouldn't say these communities, communities and high density, you know, poor communities need better access to healthcare, for example. So in our minds, the solution might then be to build a clinic, to build a hospital. That, however, will require the clearing of land, right? It requires some kind of development, in quotes, (laughs) in order for that to happen. So Dr. Kimari, how do we hold then the tension of wanting more, again, quote, development, that then may come at the cost of ecological development or environmental safeties that these communities also have the right to. How do we reason that? Because I, and I come, what, another example that comes to mind is this expressway and the tens of thousands of people who lost their homes when that expressway was built. But I think the argument is that Nairobi absolutely needed better infrastructure in order to facilitate economic conversations or cultural opportunities. That was not happening with the current traffic plans. How do we hold these two needs or possibilities in, in together? How do we hold them at the same time? I was going to say, Lily, um, honestly, we're really lacking imagination if we think that the only solution to building a 27-kilometer <coughs> highway is evicting 40,000 people. There's trains 
there's uh we can there's so many other things that we can focus on you know but we're completely lacking in imagination and honestly this expressway is not even working it's not even profitable 30 percent sorry the kenyan kenya will not receive actual monies from this expressway for 30 years so it's not even wow. benefiting us in any way and cars themselves once you build more roads more cars come so uh, there could have been a actual investment in clean public infrastructure. But I hear your question because um, I hear a question, how do we hold the needs of the city, the needs of the city in its current version and the rights of others? But I think that that wouldn't be a question if we thought that everyone could belong in the city. So if we think that everyone can belong in the mm. city, they, it wouldn't be this question of this or that, that there would be a way that people bring forward. If urban planning was actually just and not exclusionary, that if it really considered people's needs, then we wouldn't build the city in ways that would require us to ask those questions. We don't need any more. We have a, we have a, oversaturation of middle-class housing in in kenya the last time except for now but the last time the city of nairobi built housing by itself was in the 70s you know so we wow, need so public housing public housing but this public wow. housing was mostly also for civil servants and um now we have social housing that's a national project but already it's i'm not i don't want to say it's failed but it's there's already questions around it for example people in mombasa were protesting recently saying you okay you're building social housing we were paying seven thousand rent now now you're telling us to move back and it costs fifteen thousand it's not social housing um right, right. yeah and i but, think has seen similar so similar activities. No, I was going to say that there's similar activities in Addis Ababa city. I used to know better. I, I feel like I don't know it as well anymore. But, you know, the government built just, I don't know, hundreds of public housing. But the cost was so high for the rent. People were subleasing and subletting. And then, of course, the, and the cycle continues. Where yeah. they were evicted from, they find a new status of those, those movements. But I... I I understand and see what you're saying and the application of it. It just is, it's not adding up to what, to meet the city's needs. And I'm not saying it's easy, really. I, I feel Nairobi uh, is a city of uh, 4.5 million. They're sure there's things cost a lot, but I think we need to have yeah. uh, better imaginations, you know? And better, better Absolutely. considerations of everyone, not even everyone, the majority. If we just attune ourselves to the needs of 70% of this city, then our city would look totally different. Instead of the, uh, <laughs> the not even the 30%, maybe the 10% of the city, we focus on those needs. So you, you've talked about some of what you've seen in communities that young people in particular are doing and and just thinking about what you've said now um, about if we listen to that 60 percent of the city that's living on five percent of the land something like that i might be getting those percentages off a bit it, but do i have it right is about 60 percent of nairobi's residents living on five percent of the land if we listen to the 60 percent what would change about nairobi I, I mean, I think a lot, and I hope I'm not romanticizing, but a lot would change how we think about land tenure and who has access to land. Uh, the immediate need to extend our water infrastructure, uh, which doesn't reach everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's always in need of repairs. What we penalize in the city. Are we really penalizing people for trying to get water? Or for having a chicken, <laughs> you know, there's still bylaws about, <laughs> about livestock in the city. Um, what would change is how we even 
under, our understanding of the city. I think Nairobi city, city uh, which is now county of Nairobi, talks about the city to do business, play, and whatever. But if we really foregrounded a livable city, a city where people can live and can thrive, mm. I think we would have a, a completely different city. So it's clear that there are gaps in what, what Nairobi is doing well. But tell me what you think Nairobi can teach its neighboring cities who are maybe a bit smaller, maybe a couple of years behind them in some of the trajectory of economic growth or urban development. What could we offer, you know, the region or even other smaller urban centers in, in Kenya that maybe Nairobi is, is catching on to, whether it's from these young people, whether it's, you know, an MCA somewhere who's, who's actually listening and, and representing their constituents. What do we have to offer? We have honestly really, 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 really remarkable young people who are our fourth generation or fifth generation in the city, but still don't have any tenure, any water, but who are, I'm really inspired them because they are doing so, I mean, not perfect, but doing so much work for their communities. Uh, imagining green space and and establishing it without fear of reprisal. You know, the city councils of the 70s and 80s just used to come and burn down uh, shack. But our demand, these young people are demanding their space uh, by, by making people attuned to the importance of a park for mental well-being, for they, they have a lot of support from their communities. So I would say, I would say that Nairobi has um, really, uh, a, and I'm not going to use resilient because resilient has just been captured by, and used in the worst way, <laughs> often, against, often against poor struggling people. But I would say imaginative and determined, and ecologically defiant young people who will, um, I think Wangari Madai said, who will do their little thing, who will do their little thing to make yeah. this city actually the green garden city that was meant to be in the 19, that was ostensibly the plan in, in 1948. But they do it in ways that respect and uphold and instill confidence in their spaces and in their peers and in their kin. So I think Nairobi has great, has great people. I mean, you know, in some ways we also have green spaces. Today, just today I was in Karura Forest and I was so grateful for that, but it's effectively inaccessible for many people, just the sheer distance from, from the city, for many people, the cost. Uh, the yeah. how far it, it can be from public transport. Uh, but these young people are taking, even in the little spaces that have, where they have to struggle for water and struggle for seedlings, creating these parks for, for, for their communities. And for me, that's really inspiring, considering that their own houses are not guaranteed. When you look at what's ahead for Nairobi in 10 years, where do you think we're headed? You know, strangely, I'm actually quite hopeful, not so much uh, by the leadership, but by um, these, these spaces that have survived 100 years that were not meant to survive, hmm. but that are still here. and. Uh, are emerging generations who create new cultures, new languages, new understandings of the city, and that defiantly claim it as theirs. And I think when you have generations that, despite the cost of rent or despite the the lack of infrastructure, infrastructure claim it as theirs, whereas maybe their parents didn't, I think it will allow for for a Nairobi that uh, is for Nairobians, it's not just for business. And I need to say that 
as as annoyed, perpetually annoyed as I am by the colonial legacies of this city, outlaws make this city what it is. They refuse to to remove the to move their their noisy matatus to the outskirts of the city. Hawkers have refused to leave this city, and even colonialists were always lamenting about hawkers and Africans selling things everywhere. So these outlaws will, will still shape the city, even if we think it's shaped by world-class city aspirations. And so for me, I, I'm really, despite the recognition of really structural oppressions, I'm always inspired by the, by the defiance of Nairobians to claim the city yeah. as theirs, even if it was never meant to be theirs. Yeah, and that, that leaves me with a lot of hope too. I'm so glad that your article just reminded us of the, not undercurrent, the current of the city that is going on despite the city. It's quite powerful when we think about it that way. So thank you for bringing that to us and being with us today. You, your work, uh, both academic and investigating this idea of outlaws is really, really compelling. So for those of us listening to the show today, what is your call to us? How can we become better outlaws in Nairobi or wherever we find ourselves across the continent or diaspora? Um, I would say just work to create the community that you hope you would wish the world to be, but also commit to that work. It's not easy, it takes time, it, but to the best that you of your ability, just envision that community and it's better in collaboration, uh, but commit to that vision. That's it. It's not obvious. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not perfect. It's not Instagrammable, but just commit to it. We will make sure to link the article in the show notes so people can read it. And also, I think they'll find lots of opportunities there, going to the hyperlinks in the content of the article that will inspire ways that they can commit to greening wherever wherever they are so thank you for that that's wonderful you're right commitment is key it brought me a lot of joy to read your article and hear about the work of greening the city by what you you know defined as outlaws for us earlier it really brought this idea back to my mind that i really believe in that there is joy in justice that doing the just thing creates joy so we, we ask every single one of our guests, you know, what is bringing them joy today? So we would love to hear for you, what is bringing you joy today? What is bringing me joy? <clears throat> um, related or unrelated to our conversation? <laughs> anything, absolutely anything. What really gets me up in the morning is the knowledge that we will win. I think justice will win. And so Palestine will be free. People will, uh, Nairobi will become green, not green with lawns, but green with fruit trees that memorialize people. Um, rivers that are, that people can live by and are not just a uh, bike path for rich people. Yeah, I really, I'm yeah. really, that's what, keeps me going and that um yeah that the color will be green or green is going to happen but in ways that are completely unforeseen by uh those in power and just yeah so that's that gives me some joy i love that i love that power to the people and the color is green i love that well, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been such a pleasure. I, I really loved your article. It really stayed with me a long time. I shared it with so many people because you just put it in a way that it was so clear. I could visualize and I pass by all those places every day. <laughs> I pass by, you know, the roadside nurseries. I pass by the bean sprouts, you know, outside of some dental office that I'm going to, you know. <laughs> The signs are everywhere, and it made me more grateful to live in a city that had this radical kind of resistance movement happening, and it gave me an opportunity to think about how I can get more involved. So thank you so much for your contributions. 
Thank you, Lily. Thanks for the invite. So, salam and hello, listeners. We would love to hear from you. Uh, send us a comment, like the show, share it. Please share this show. I mean, if this resonated with you, if some of the things that Wangboy was saying kind of triggered something for you, share the episode. It's a great way to start a conversation that we so desperately need to be having. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. You know where to find us. And until we meet again. Have a great week. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to hold on. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to hold on. Mm-hmm.